Hello, anyone and everyone. Welcome to episode number 28 of the Nomadic Flex podcast. As you know, recently we celebrated our day of freedom, 4th of July. And today I'm going to be talking about what it's like to not have that freedom. And freedom, despite the name, is not free. Freedom costs lives. So today, I would like to talk about the Gulag Archipelago, where freedom was not available. The Gulag was a system of Soviet-forced labor camps with locations scattered all around Russia. These camps held criminals, but these people would not be criminals if living somewhere else. So let's go to the book and see just who was forced to work in these terrible conditions at these camps. So this book is called The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solsheshin. A lot of Russian names in the podcast today, so pardon me if my pronunciation is off. Chapter 1. <clears throat> How do people get to this clandestine archipelago? Hour by hour, planes fly there, ships steer their course there, and trains thunder off to it but all with nary a mark on them to tell of their destination. And at ticket windows or at travel bureaus for Soviet or foreign tourists to employees would be astounded if you were to ask for a ticket to go there. They know nothing and they've never heard of the archipelago as a whole or as any one of its innumerable islands. Those who go to the archipelago to administer it get there via the training, schools of the Ministry of International Affairs. Those who go there to be guards are conscripted via the military conscription centers. And those who, like you and me, dear reader, go there to die, must get there solely and compulsory via arrest. Arrest. Need it be said that it is a breaking point in your life, a bolt of lightning which has scored a direct hit on you. That is, an unassimilable spiritual earthquake not every person can cope with, as a result of which people often slip into insanity. The universe has many different centers as there are living beings in it. Each of us is a center of the universe, and that universe is shattered when they hiss at you. You are under arrest. If you are arrested, can anything else remain unshattered by this cataclysm? But this darkened mind is incapable of embracing this displacements in our universe, and both of the most sophisticated and the verest simpleton among us, drawing on all of life's experience, can grasp out only me? What for? And this is a question which, through repeated millions and millions of times before, has yet to receive an answer. Arrest is an instantaneous shattering thrust, expulsion, somersault from one state into another. We have been happily born or perhaps unhappily dragged out weary way down the long and crooked streets of our lives. Past all kinds of walls and fences made of rotting wood, rammed earth, brick, concrete, iron railings. We have never given a thought to what lies beyond them. We have never tried to penetrate them with our vision or our understanding. 
but there is where the gulag country begins, right next to us, two yards away from us. In addition, we have failed to notice an enormous number of closely fitted, well-designed doors and gates in these fences. All those gates were prepared for us, every last one. And all of a sudden, the fateful gate swings open in four white male hands, unaccustomed to physical labor, but nonetheless strong and tenacious, grab us by the leg, arm, collar, cap, ear, and drag us in like a sack. And the gate behind us, the gate to our past life, is slammed shut once and for all. That's all there is to it. You are arrested. And you'll find nothing better to respond than with a lamb-like lamb bleat. Me? What for? That's what arrest is. It's a blinding flash and a blow which shifts the present instantly into the past and the impossible into omnipotent actuality. That's all. And neither for the first hour nor the first day you will, able to, you will be able to grasp anything else. Except that it's in your desperation, the fake circus moon will blink at you. It's a mistake. They'll set things right. And everything which is now compromised in the traditional, even literary, image of an arrest will pile up and take shape. Not in your own disordered memory, but in what your family, in your neighbors, in your apartment remember. The sharp nighttime ring or the rude knock at the door the insolent entrance of the unwhipped jackboots of the unsleeping state security operatives, the frightened and code civilian witnesses at their backs. And what function does the civilian witness serve? The victim doesn't even dare think about it, and the operatives don't remember. But that's what the regulations call for. So he has to sit there all night long and sign in the morning. For the witness jerked from his bed, it is torture too, to go out at night, to go out night after night to help arrest his own neighbors and acquaintances. The traditional image of arrest is also trembling hands packing for the victim. A change of underwear, a piece of soap, something to eat, and no one knows what is needed, what is permitted, what clothes are best to wear, and the security agents keep interrupting and hurrying you. You don't need anything. They'll feed you there. It's all there. It's warm there. It's all lies. They keep hurrying you to frighten you. The traditional image of arrest is also what happens afterward, when the poor victim has been taken away. It is an alien, brutal, and crushing force totally dominating the apartment for hours on end. A breaking, ripping open pulling from the walls, emptying things from wardrobes and desks onto the floor, shaking, dumping out, and ripping apart, piling up mountains of litter on the floor, and the crunch of things being trampled beneath jackboots. And nothing is sacred in a search. During the arrest of the locomotive engineer, Inoshin, a tiny coffin stood in his room containing the body of his newly dead child. The jurists dumped the child's body out of the coffin and searched it. They shake sick people out of their sick beds, and they unwind bandages to search beneath them. 
for those left behind after the arrest, there is a long tail end of a wrecked and devastated life. And the attempts to go and deliver food parcels? But from all the windows, the answer comes in barking voices. Nobody here by that name. Never heard of him. Yes, in the worst days of Leningrad, it took five days of standing in crowded lines just to get to that window. And it may be only open half a year or one year that that arrested person. And it may be only after half a year or a year that the arrested person responds at all. Or else the answer is tossed out, deprived of the right to correspondence. And that means once and for all, no right to correspondence. And that almost for certain means he has been shot. So breaking that down, there's these food windows and people that work there and and the, the government operatives will say, oh, he's not here. That person's not here. We don't know that name. And after half a year or a year, the people start to realize that in actuality he has been shot. He's no longer there. <clears throat> That's how we picture arrest to ourselves. The kind of night arrest described is best. The kind of night arrest described is, in fact, a favorite because it has important advantages. Everyone living in the apartment is thrown into a state of terror by the first knock of the door. The arrested person is torn from the warmth of his bed. He is in a daze, half asleep, helpless, and his judgment is befogged. In a night arrest, the state security men have a superiority in numbers. There are many of them, armed, against one person who hasn't even finished buttoning his trousers. During the arrest and search, it is highly improbable that a crowd of potential supporters will gather at the entrance. The unhurried step-by-step -step visits, first to one apartment, then to another, tomorrow to a third and a fourth, provide an opportunity for the security operative personnel to be deployed with the maximum efficiency and to, at that moment, a Pidoa Pobeda sedan draws up the curb. And several days later, Tass will issue an angry statement that all the papers alleging that the informed circles of the Soviet government have no information on the disappearance of Alexander Dolgan. But what's so unusual about that? Our boys have carried out such arrest in Brussels, which was where Zoa Blendov was seized, not just in Moscow. One has to give the organs their due. And in this book, organs, when he talks about organs, he's referring to the government. One has to give the organs their due. In an age when public speeches, the plays in our theaters, and women's fashions all seem kind to have come off the assembly lines, arrest can be made of the most varied kind. They take you aside in a factory corridor after you've had your pass checked and you're arrested. They take you from a military hospital with a temperature of 102, as they did with Anne Burstein. And the doctor will not raise a peep about your arrest. Just let him try. They'll take you right off the operating table as they took N.M. Vorbev, a school inspector. In 1936, in the middle of an operation for stomach ulcer, and drag you off to a cell as they did half alive and all bloody. 
In the gastronome, the fancy food store, you were invited to a special order department and arrested there. You are arrested by a religious pilgrim whom you have put up with for the night for Christ's sake. You are arrested by a meter man who has come to read your electric meter. You are arrested by a bicyclist who runs into you on the street, by a railway conductor, a taxi driver, a savings bank teller, the manager of a movie theater. Any one of them can arrest you. And you noticed, and you notice the concealed maroon color identification card only when it is too late. Sometimes arrests seem to be a game. There is so much superfluous, that's a tough word, superfluous imagination, so much well-fed energy invested in them. After all, the victim would not resist anyway. Is it that the security agents want to justify their employment and their numbers? After all, it would seem enough to send notices to all the rabbits marked for arrest and that they would show up immediately at the designated hour and minute at the iron gates of state security with a bundle in their hands, ready to occupy a piece of floor in the cell for which they were intended. And in fact, that's the way collective farmers are arrested. Who wants to go all the way to a hut at night with no roads to travel on? They are summoned to the village Soviet and arrested there. Manual workers are called into the office. Of course, every machine has a point at which is overloaded beyond which it cannot function. It is strained and overloaded years of 1945 and 1946 when trainload after trainload poured in from Europe to be swallowed up immediately and sent off to the gulag. All that excessive theatrics theatrical three theatricality went out the window and the whole theory suffered greatly all the fuss and feathers of ritual went flying in every direction and the arrest of tens of thousands took on the appearance of a squalid roll car roll call they stood there with lists read off names of the ones on the train loaded them onto another and that was the whole arrest so this this book is a is a tough read to say the least. The way that the gentleman writes it is is very intriguing, but but imagine imagine that imagine you're at the local shopping mall and all of a sudden you hear your name announced over the intercom that you've won a car giveaway, only to leave the same mall in handcuffs for crimes against the state. That's how they did it here. Talking some more about the arrests that occurred, we're going to go back to the book. In considering now the period from 1918 to 1920, we are in difficulties. Should we classify among the prison waves all those who were done in before we even got to the cells? And in what classification should we put those whom the committees of the poor took behind the wing of the village Soviet or to the rear of the courtyard and finished off right there? Did the participants in the clusters of plots uncovered in every province at least succeed in setting foot on the land of the archipelago, or did they not? And are they therefore not related to the subject of our investigations? bypassing the repression of now famous rebellions 
Yaroslav, Muran, Reipzig, Amaras, we know of certain events only by their names. For instance, the Colpino executions of June 1918. What were they? Who were they? And where should they be classified? So there he's talking about all of the unaccounted for prisoners that were executed, that nobody had known they were executed as soon as they got to the camps, mainly because the camps were filling up so quickly. There is also no little difficulty in deciding whether we should classify among the prison waves or in the balance sheets of the Civil War, those tens of thousands of hostages, i.e. people not personally accused of anything, those peaceful citizens, not even listed by name, who were taken off and destroyed simply to terrorize or wreak vengeance on a military enemy or a rebellious population. This action was in fact explained openly. We are not fighting against single individuals. We are exterminating the bourgeoisie as a class. It is not necessary during the interrogation to look for evidence proving that the, that the accused opposed the Soviets by word or action. The first question which you should ask him is what class does he belong to, what is his origin, his education, and his profession. These are the questions which will determine the fate of the accused. Such is the sense and the essence of Red Terror a decree of the Defense Council on February 15, 1919. The meeting was a evidently president. The meeting was evidently presided over by Lenin. Suggests that the Cheka and the NKVD takes hostages among the peasants of those regions where the cleaning of snow from the railroads does not proceed quite satisfactorily, and that these hostages be executed if the cleaning is not completed. But even restricting ourselves to ordinary arrests, we can note that by the spring of 1918, a torrent of socialist traitors had already begun that was to continue without slacking for many years. In 1919, suspicion of our Russians returning from abroad was already having its effect. Thus, the officers of the Russian expeditionary forces in France were imprisoned on their homecoming. So their own forces, they're arresting their own forces when they're on their way back from France. <clears throat> in 1919 too, what with the big halls and connections with such actual and pseudo plots as the National Center and the military plot, executions were carried out in Moscow, Petrograd, and other cities on the basis of lists. In other words, free people were simply arrested and executed immediately. From January 1919 on, food requisitioning was organized and food collecting detachments were set up. They encountered resistance everywhere in the rural areas, sometimes stubborn and passive, sometimes violent. The suppression of the opposition gave rise to an abundant flood of arrests during the course of the next two years, not counting those who were shot on the spot. And what, they, what they're talking about there is Russia had a food shortage due to the World War. And instead of letting the free market 
repopulate. They forced farmers to give all of their food to the state, and then it was distributed through the population. And a lot of farmers that own this land and own this property and own their crops fought back. <clears throat> In that same year, the practice of arresting students began. Also, in 1921, the arrest of members of all non-Bolshevik parties were expanded and systemized. In fact, all Russian political parties had been buried, except the victorious one. In the spring of 1922, the Extraordinary Commission for Struggle Against the Counter-Revolution, Sabotage, and Speculation, the Cheka was recently renamed the GPU, decided to intervene in church affairs, it was called on to carry out a church revolution to remove the existing leadership and replace it with one, with one which would have only one ear turned to heaven and the other to the Lubyanka. The so-called living church people seemed to go along with this plan, but without outside help, they could not gain control of the church apparatus. For this reason, the patriarch Tikhon was arrested and two resounding trials were held, followed by the execution in Moscow of those who had publicized the patriarch's appeal and in Petrograd of the, met of the metropolitan Vietnam, who had attempted to hinder the transfer of ecclesiastical power to the living church group. Here and there, in the provincial centers, and even further down in the administrative districts, met Metropolitans and bishops were arrested, and, as always, in the wake of big fish followed shoals of smaller fry, archpriests, monks, and deacons. These were arrested, were not even reported in the press. They also arrested those who refused to swear to support the living church renewal movement. Men of religion were an inevitable part of every annual catch and their silver locks gleamed in every cell and in every prison transport en route to the Solvesky Islands. From the early 20s on, arrests were made among groups of theosophists, mystics, and spiritualists. Also, religious societies and philosophers of the Bernadov cycle, the so-called Eastern Catholics, Followers of Vladimir Solovev were arrested and destroyed in passing, as was the group of A.I. Abrokosov and, of course, ordinary Roman Catholics, Polish Catholic priests, etc., were arrested too as part of the normal course of events. However, the root destruction of religion in the country, which throughout the 20s and 30s was one of the most important goals of the GPU, could be realized only by mass arrest of Orthodox believers, monks and nuns, whose black habits had been a distinctive future feature of old Russian life. They were intensively round up on every hand, placed under arrest, and sent into exile. They arrested and sentenced active laymen. The circles kept getting bigger as they raked in ordinary believers as well, old people and particularly women who were the most stubborn believers of all and who, for many long years to come, would be called nuns in transport and in camps. True, they were supposed 
supposedly being arrested and tried not for their actual faith, but for openly declaring their convictions and for bringing up their children in the same spirit. As Tanya Kajofis wrote, you can pray freely, but just so God alone can hear. You can pray freely, but just so God alone can hear. So they're arresting literally anyone who's disagreeing with the state's actions in this. All the harmless civilians, the farmers, the workers, anyone who slightly opposes the government is being arrested and sent out to these gulag camps, the gulag archipelago. The amount of fear and and loyalty that, that was beaten into the people of this country at this time was truly outstanding and communist propaganda like this still holds true in places like North Korea. In in North Korea, if, if a leader dies, people are seen weeping and crying on the streets for days, days on end. It just goes to show the true power of what propaganda can do and, and what happens if you are going against it. So people are just beaten into fear. Absolutely, absolutely terrible. All right. This next section actually has a pretty good example of the country's dedication to their leader. So we're going to go back to the book for two pages here. Paradoxically enough, every act of the all-penetrating, eternally wakeful organs over a span of many years was solely based on one article of the 140 articles of the non-general division of the criminal code of 1926. One can find more empathets and praise in this article than the Tugarov. Once assembled to praise the Russian language or Nekrasov to praise Mother Russia. Great, powerful, abundant, highly ramified, multiform, wide-sweeping 58, which summed up the world not so much through its exact terms and of its sections as in their extended dialectical interpretation. Whom among us had not experienced its all-encompassing embrace? In all truth, there is no step, thought, action, or lack of action under the heavens which could not be punished by the heavy hand of Article 58. And Article 58's what they implemented into these people. And this is where all these rests were taken place. So they they made it almost impossible to follow along with these laws so that they could arrest as many people as possible. All right, so talking about Article 58 and the communist propaganda that was brought up. We're going to go back to the book. There was no section in Article 58 which was interpreted as broadly and with so arrogant and revolutionary conscience as Section 10. Its definition was propaganda or agitation containing an appeal for the overthrow, subverting, or weakening of the Soviet power and equally the dissemination or preparation or possession of literary materials of similar content. 
for this section in peacetime, a minimum penalty was only set, not any less, not too light, no upper limit was set for the maximum penalty. Here is one vignette uh, from those years as it actually occurred. A district party conference was underway in Moscow province. It was presided over by a new secretary of the district party committee, replacing one recently arrested. At the conclusion of the conference, a tribute to Comrade Stalin was called for. Of course, everyone stood up, just as everyone had leaped to his feet during the conference at every mention of his name. The small hall echoed with stormy applause, rising to an ovation for three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. The stormy applause, rising to an ovation, continued. But palms were getting sore, and raised arms were already aching, and the older people were panting from exhaustion. It became insufferably silly, even to those who really adored Stalin. However, who would dare be the first to stop? The district of the dis- the secretary of the district party committee could have done it. He was standing on a platform, and it was he who had just called for the ovation, but he was a newcomer. He had taken the place of a man who'd been arrested. He was afraid. After all, NKVD men were standing in the hall applauding and watching to see who quit first. In that obscure, small hall, unknown to the leader, the applause went on for six, seven, eight minutes. They were done for. The goose was cooked. They couldn't stop now till they collapsed with heart attacks. At the rear of the hall, which was crowded, they could, of course, cheat a bit, clap less frequently, less vigorously, not so eagerly. But up there with the presidium, with the presidium where everyone could see them, the director of the local paper factory, an independent and strong-minded man, stood with the presidium. Aware of all the falsity and all the impossibility of the situation, he still kept applauding. Nine minutes. Ten in anguish, he watched the secretary of the party committee, but the latter he watched the secretary of the district party committee, but the latter dared to stop. Insanity to the last man. With make-believe enthusiasm on their faces, looking at each other with faint hope, the district leaders were just going on and on and on, applauding till they fell where they stood, till they were carried out of the hall on stretchers. And even then, those who were left would not falter. Then after 11 minutes, the director of the paper factory assembled a business-like expression and sat down in his seat. Oh, a miracle took place. Where had the universal, uninhibited, indescribable enthusiasm gone? To a man, everyone else stopped dead and sat down. They had been saved. The squirrel had been smart enough to jump off his revolving wheel. That, however, how, that, however, was how they discovered who the independent people were, and that was how they went about eliminating them. That same night, the factory director was arrested. They easily passed 10 years on him, 10 years, on the pretext of something quite different. But after he had signed Form 206, the final document of the interrogation, his interrogator reminded him, don't ever be the first to stop applauding. I mean, that's just ridiculous, right? 
11 minutes applauding, standing up. No one is sitting down. No one is stopping applauding. People are being carried out on stretchers and all because they are terrified of being arrested because they do not live in a free society. So that's just an example of some of the propaganda that was exposed during this time. We are going to go back to the book for our last section here. Now, I want to keep in mind that I am not reading the entirety of this book because it's a few hundred pages and it is a tough read. I'm skipping throughout it. But the last section we're going to read here is about the condition of the cells that they were in. And it was just brutal and I had to point it out. <clears throat> here we go back to the book. It was Ivanov Romasum. Razumik, who in the Labonkia reception kennel calculated that for weeks at a time, there were three persons for each square yard of floor space. Just as an experiment, try to fit three people into that space. In this kennel, there was neither ventilation nor a window, and the prisoner's body heat and breathing raised the temperature to 40 or 45 degrees centigrade. 104 to 113 degrees Fahrenheit. And everyone sat there in their undershorts with their winter clothing piled beneath them. Their naked bodies were pressed against one another and they got eczema from one another's sweat. They sat like that for weeks at a time and they were given neither fresh air nor water except for gruel and tea in the morning. And if at the same time, the latrine bucket replaced all over the types of toilet and if, on the other hand, there was no latrine bucket for use between trips to an outside toilet, as was the case with several Siberian prisons, and if four people ate from one bowl sitting on each other's knees, and if someone was hauled out for interrogation, and then someone else was pushed in, beaten up, sleepless, and broken, and if the appearance of such broken men was more persuasive than any threats on the part of the interrogators, and if by then death in any camp would ever seemed easier to a prisoner who had left unsummoned for months than his torment than his tormented current situation. Perhaps this really did replace the theor theoretically ideal isolation and solitary. And you could not always decide in such a porridge of people from whom to be forthright. And you could not always find and you could not always find someone from whom to seek advice. And you would believe in their tortures and beatings, not when the interrogator threatened you with them, but when you saw the results on other prisoners. You could learn from those who had suffered that they could give you a saltwater douche in the throat and then leave you in a box for a day tormented by thirst, or that they might scrape the skin off a man's back with a grater to let bled and then oil it with turpentine. And from Alexandrov, the former head of the arts section of the All-Union Society for Cultural Relations with foreign countries, who has had a broken spinal column which tilts to one side and who cannot control his deer ducks and thus cannot stop crying. One can learn how Abakomrov could himself could beat. 
Yes, yes, military minister of state secretary Abakumov himself did not by any means spur such menial labor. He was not adverse to taking a rubber truncheon in his hands every once in a while. And his deputy, Rumun, was even more willing. He did this in the general's interrogation office. The office had imitation walnut paneling on the walls, silk portraits on the windows and doors, and a great Persian carpet on the floor. In order not to spoil all of this beauty, a dirty runner bespattered with blood was rolled out on top of the carpet when a prisoner was beaten. When Ruman was done with beaten, beating, he was assisted not by some ordinary guard, but by a colonel. And so, said Ruman, politely stroking his rubber truncheon, which was four centimeters and an inch and a half thick, you have survived trial by sleepiness with honor. So now we will try the club. Prisoners can't take more than two or three sessions of this. Let down your trousers and lay down on the runner. The colonel sat down on the prisoner's back. Alexander Dolgan was going to count the blows. He didn't yet know about a blow from a rubber truncheon on the sciatic nerve when the buttocks have disappeared as a consequence of prolonged starvation. The effect is not felt in the place where the blow is delivered. It explodes inside the head. After the first blow, the victim was mad with pain and broke his nails on the carpet. Ruman beat anyway, trying to hit accurately. The colonel pressed down on Alexander Dolgan's torso. This was just the right sort of work for three big shoulder, bar, three big shoulder board stars assisting the all-powerful Ruman. After the beating, the prisoner could, could not walk and, of course, was not carried. They just dragged him along the floor. What was left of his buttocks was so swollen that he could not button his trousers, and yet there was practically no scars. He was hit by a violent case of diarrhea, and sitting there in the latrine bucket in solitary, Alexander Dolgan goffed. He went through a second and a third session. His skin cracked, and Ruman went wild and started to beat him on the stomach, breaking through the intestinal wall and creating an enormous hernia through which Alexander Dolgan's intestines protruded. The prisoner was taken off to Boutry Hospital with a case of peritonitis. And from the time being, their attempts to compel him to commit a follow deed were suspended. That is how they can torture you too. And that it could seem a simple fatherly caress when the Kuznev interrogator Dolinov beat Father Viktor Shapvalnikov across the back with a poker and pulled him by his long hair. It is convenient to drag a priest around in that fashion. Ordinarily, laymen can drag by the beard from one corner of the office to the other. And Richard Ohoga, a Finnish Red Guard, and a participant in the capture of British agent Sidney Riley, a commander of a company who, during the, during the suppression of the Krostov Revolt, was lifted up with pliers first by one end of the great mustaches, of his great mustaches, and then by the other, and was held for ten minutes with his feet off the floor. 
<clears throat> but the most awful thing they can do with you is this. Undress you from the waist down, place you on your back on the floor, pull your legs apart, seat assistants on them, who also hold down your arms, and then the interrogator, and women interrogators have not shrunk from this, stand between your legs and with the toe of his boot or of her shoe, gradually, steadily, and with even greater pressure, crushes against the floor those organs which once made you a man. He looks into your eyes and repeats and repeats his questions or the betrayal he is urging on you. If he does not press down too quickly or just a shade too powerfully, you will still have 15 seconds left in which to scream that you will confess to everything, that you are ready to see arrested all 20 of the peoples he's been demanding of you, or that you will slander in the newspapers everything you hold holy. And I think that is going to wrap up the podcast for today. I certainly need to work on my Russian pronunciations of some words. There are some tough ones in there to say the least, but I'm going to end the podcast with this today. And I said it at the beginning, freedom is not free. There are men and women who have sacrificed their time, effort, energy, and they have sacrificed the greatest sacrifice of all their lives. They've given their lives so that you and I could be here today, so that we could live in a wonderful country that is free. So the next time you think about complaining or the next time you don't really want to get out of bed that day or the next time something's bothering you, put it into perspective, how menial is that issue? How menial is that task? How menial is that complaint compared to the gulag, compared to the great oppression of Russian people? Freedom is not free and to not take advantage of it, to not take advantage of it is frankly offensive. You have every opportunity, every second, every day, every hour to get better, faster, stronger, smarter. So do not sit there and ruin your own life with junk food. Do not sit there and kill your brain cells with TV. Get up, get going, and get moving. Go do something today that will make you a stronger, better person. And with that, I would like to thank you all for listening to the podcast today. As you know, my name is Isaiah. This is the Nomadic Flex podcast. And we'll see you next time. Out.